interest. Just for the sermon, these are rocks, by the way. And I won't be throwing them. If we can um, open our Bibles to John chapter 8, please. John chapter 8, we're going to be reading from verse 2, not verse 1, from verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and the people came to him and sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, they almost commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they had kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once he began, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before them. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from from now on, sin no more. Can I just point that phrase at the end? He said all that words. Go, sin, no more. The voices yanked her out of bed. They would have said to her, get up you harlots, what kind of woman do you think you are? Priests slammed open the bedroom door. They would have thrown back those window curtains. They would have pulled off the covers. Before she felt the warmth of the sun, she felt the the scorn of their finger pointing. Shame on you. Pathetic, disgusting. That's what they would have said to her. She scarcely had time to cover her body before they marched her through those narrow streets. You can imagine that the dogs were barking. You can imagine that the roosters were running all over the place. The women were leaning out the windows. Mothers would have snatched their children off the path. Merchants would have peered out their doors and their shops. Jerusalem had become a jury, and it rendered its verdict with glares and crossed arms. And as if this bedroom, raid and parade had had not been enough somehow, the men thrust her into the middle of a 4pm church service on a Sunday. Early next morning, Jesus was back again at the temple, as we read. A crowd had soon gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. And as he was speaking, 
the teachers of the Jewish religious law, the Pharisees, brought this woman who they had caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. And we read in two, uh, John 8, 2, 5, where teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. Well, what do you say? You would have had stunned students, no doubt, on the one side of her. You would have had those, you know, those pious plaintiffs would have been on the other side of her. They would have had their questions. They would have had their convictions. All she had was her dangling negligee and her smeared lipstick. This woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Her accusers would have crowed. Caught in the very act, in the moment, in the arms, in the passion. Caught by the very, in the very act by the Jerusalem Council on Decency and Conduct. The law of Moses says, stone her. But what do you say? The woman had no exit. She couldn't get out. Could she deny the accusations? How could she deny the accusations? She had been caught in the act. Could she plead to God? His spokesmen were there squeezing stones, snaring their lips. Nobody would speak up for her, but someone would stoop for her. Jesus stooped, and he wrote in the dust, verse 6, Would we not expect Jesus to stand up, step forward, and perhaps come up to be higher everybody else? But instead, he leaned over. He descended lower than anybody else. He descended beneath the priests. He descended beneath the people. Even beneath the woman, Jesus stooped. The accusers looked down on her, but to see Jesus, they had to stoop even further. Because we have a Jesus who is prone to stoop. He stooped to wash feet. He stooped to embrace children. He stooped to pull Peter out of the sea, to pray in the garden. He stooped before the Roman whipping post. He stooped to carry the cross. Grace is a God who stoops. And here he stooped and he wrote in the sand. Remember the first time that his fingers touched the soil? When he scooped soil and perhaps we remember formed Adam? As he touched that sun-baked soil there beside the woman, Jesus may, may have been living the creation moment reminding himself of whence we came. You see, earthly humans are prone to do earthly things, are we not? Maybe Jesus wrote in the soil for his benefit, or perhaps he did it for hers, diverting those gaping eyes, you can imagine, from this scantily clad, just-caught woman who stood in the centre of this circle. The posse grew very impatient, with this silent, stooping Jesus. Verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. 
So he stood up. You can imagine he lifted, he said here, he lifted himself erect until his shoulders were straight, his head was high. He stood up not to preach to anybody, for his words would be few, would they not? Not for long, because he would stoop again. Not to instruct his followers. He did not address his followers. He stood up on behalf of the woman. He placed himself between her and that lynch mob. All right, stone her, but let those who have never sinned, never sinned throw the first stones. Then he stooped and wrote in the dust. You see those name callers, what do they do? They shut their mouths. The rocks fell to the ground. Jesus resumed his scribbling. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away with red, one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Jesus wasn't finished. He stood one final time and he asked the woman, Where are your accusers? What a question. What a question. Not just for her, but for us. Voices of condemnation also awaken us, do they not? You're not good enough. You'll never improve. You failed again. You failed again. These are the voices that are in our world. These are the voices that we hear in our heads, isn't it not? Who is this morality policeman who issues a ticket every time we stumble? Who reminds us of every mistake that we make? Does he ever shut up? No, because Satan will never, ever shut up. The Apostle John called him the accuser. If you go to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 to 10, Satan will never, ever shut up. It reads, Revelation 12, verses 9 to 10. The dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before our God. Day after day, hour after hour, resentless, tireless, the accuser makes a career out of accusing. Unlike the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Satan's brings condemnation. That's what he brings. Here's one aim. John 10.10 says, this is his aim, is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he has an aim. He wants to steal your peace. He wants to kill your dreams. He wants to destroy your future. And you know what? He has deputized a horde of silver-tongued demons to help him out do that. He needs people to peddle 
He's poison. Friends dredge up the past. Preachers proclaim all guilt and no grace. Parents, all parents, we own our own travel agency and we specialise in guilt trips, do we not? <laughs> we peddle it 24 hours a day, long into adulthood, you can still hear the voices, why can't you grow up? When are you going to make me proud? Condemnation is the preferred commodity of Satan. He will repeat the adulterous woman scenario as often as you permit him to do so. He'll march you through the streets. He'll drag your name through the mud. He pushes you into the centre of the crowd and he will megaphone your sin. This person was caught in the act of immorality, stupidity, dishonesty, irresponsibility. But he will not have the last word. Jesus has acted on your behalf. Because he stooped. He stooped low enough to sleep in a manger, work in a carpentry shop, sleep in a fishing boat, low enough to rub shoulders with crooks and lepers, low enough to be spat upon, slapped, nailed, speared, low, low enough to be buried. But then he stood up, up from the slab of death, upright in Joseph's tomb and right into Satan's face. He stood high, he stood tall, he stood up for that woman and he silenced her accusers and he does exactly the same thing for you and me. He does exactly the same thing for you and me. He stands up for, in the presence of God at this very moment, he is sticking up for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 34. Let me sink in for a moment. In the presence of God, in defiance of Satan, Jesus Christ rises to your defense and he takes on the role of a priest. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 21-22 reads, Since we have a great high priest over God's house, let us come near to God with sincere heart, a sure faith, because we have been made free from a guilty conscience. A clean conscience. You have a clean record. You have a clean heart. You are free from accusations. You are free from condemnation. Not just from our past mistakes, but from the ones that we will make in the future. Hebrews 7.25 said, Since we, he will live forever, he will always be there to remind God that he has paid for our sins with his blood. Christ offers an ending intercession on your behalf. Jesus trumps the devil's guilt with words of grace. Though we were spiritually dead because of the things we did against God, he gave us new life with Christ. 
You have been saved by God's grace. And he raised us, us up with Christ and gave us a seat with him in the heavens. He did this for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that for your future time, he could show the very great riches of his grace by being kind to us in Christ Jesus. I mean that you've been saved by grace through believing. You didn't save yourselves, did you? It was a gift from God. It was not the result of your own efforts. So you can't brag about it. God has made us what we are. In Jesus, God has made us to do good works, which God planned in advance for us to live our lives doing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 to 10. You are, I want to look out here, we are, behold, the fruit of grace, that's what we are. We are saved by God. We are raised by God. We are seated with God. We are gifted. We are equipped. And we are commissioned. You can say, farewell, earthly condemnations. You can do that. Stupid, unproductive, slow learner, fast talker, quitter, cheap state. No longer. No longer. You are who he says you are. You are spiritually alive. You are heavenly positioned. You are connected to God. You are a billboard of mercy. You are an honoured child. That is the aggressive forgiveness that we call grace. Romans 5 verse 20. Satan is left speechless and he's got no ammunition against that. He's got no ammunition against that. Romans 8 verse 33-34 reads, Who can accuse the people God has chosen? No one. Because God is the one who makes them right. Who can say God's people are guilty? No one, because Christ Jesus died, but he was also raised from the dead. And now he is on God's right side, appealing to God for us. Every one of us. Those accusations of Satan, they splutter, and it's like a deflated balloon. They're going nowhere. So why do you still hear? Why do I, or perhaps other people here, Christians, they say, oh, I still feel guilty. I still feel guilty. You see, not all guilt is bad. Not all guilt is bad. God uses an appropriate doses of guilt to awaken us to sin. Does he not? Yeah. We know guilt is God-given when it causes indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. God's guilt brings enough regret to change us. Satan's guilt brings enough regret to enslave us. Let me say that again slowly. God's guilt brings enough regret to change us. Satan's guilt brings enough regret to enslave us. There's a difference. We are not to let him put the shackles on us. We're not to do that. Remember, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, chapter 3. You see, when he looks at you, and you've heard this many times before, he sees Jesus first. 
That's what he sees. In the Chinese language, and I won't do any Chinese language, the word for righteousness is the combination of two characters. The figure of a lamb and a person. Did you know that? The lamb is on top covering the person. When God looks down at you, this is what he sees. The perfect lamb of God covering you. You see, it boils down to this choice. Do you trust your advocate or do you trust your accuser? Your answer has serious implications. Which one you trust? It did for somebody called Jean Valjean. Victor Hugo introduces us to this character in the classic Las Miserables. Valjean enters the pages as a vagabond, does he not? A just released prisoner in midlife, wearing threadbare trousers, he wears a tattered jacket. Nineteen years in a French prison have left him rough and fearless. He's walked for four days in the alpine chill of the 19th century southeastern France, only to find that no one will take him in. There's going to be no tavern that will feed him. Finally, he knocks on the door of a bishop's house. Monsignor Morel is 75 years old. Like Valjean, he has lost much. The revolution took all his valuables from his family except some silverware, a soup ladle, and two candlesticks. Valjean tells his story and expects this religious man to turn him away. But the bishop is kind. He asks the visitor to sit near the fire. You don't have to tell me who you are. This house is the house of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not mine. After some time, the bishop takes this ex-convict to the table where they dine on soup, bread and figs, cheese and wine, using the bishop's fine silverware. He shows, shows Valjean to a bedroom, but in spite of all the comfort, all this ex-prisoner can't sleep. In spite of the kindness of this bishop, he can't resist that temptation. He stuffs the silverware in his rucksack. The priest slips through the theft and Valjean disappears. But he does not get far. The police catch him and march him back to the bishop's house. Valjean knows what this capture means, prison for the rest of his life. But then something absolutely amazing happens. Before the officer can explain the crime, the bishop steps forward and he says, Oh, there you are. I'm so glad to see you. I can't believe that you forgot the candlesticks. They are made of pure silver as well. Please take them with the forks and spoons that I gave you. Thou, Jean, is stunned. The bishop dismisses the policeman and he turns to him and says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. I have bought your soul from you. I take it back from evil thoughts and deeds and the spirit of hell, and I give it to God. Valjean has a choice. Believe the priest or believe his past. Valjean believes the priest. 
He becomes the mayor of a small town. He builds a factory and he gives jobs to the poor. He takes pity on a dying mother and he raises her daughter. Grace changed him. Let it change you. Give no heed to Satan's voice. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. As your advocate, he defends you and says on your behalf, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. You can say, do you know what? Take that, Satan. You can do that. Take that. Wasn't this the message of Jesus to the woman? Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Within a few moments, that courtyard would have been empty. Jesus, the one and the critics, they had all left. But let's linger. As the worship team come forward, let's linger for a minute while I collect those. Just linger in that courtyard. Imagine that scribbling in the sand. It's the only sermon that Jesus ever wrote. While we do not know what he wrote, I'm wondering if they read like this. Grace happens here. Amen.